Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And my guest today is a designer, a developer, a member of the team at Funko, and is the person behind the new upcoming game, Wicked and Wise, being published by Weird Draft Games. Welcome to the show, Fertessa Elise. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> that was a wind up. That that was a, a mouthful there. Do you feel like you're you're ready for the weird draft treatment? Well, I, I hope so. Um yeah, I'm just looking forward to it. I've I I, I don't know what it's gonna which up what I should expect. <laughs> I'm really interested in you being part of the Funko Games team, which I know is like an evolution or a rebranding of Prospero Hall. And that that's like a whole thing in and of itself. But you're also an independent game designer, a freelancer who can pitch games to other companies. And that seems like that may be a... a um, a unique thing to our hobby because you know like writers who are under contract with one publishing company you know they they might not be able to publish something elsewhere or uh patents that are developed within you know a, a technology company um might not be able to be uh sold to other companies so like what is your relationship i guess to funko and uh you know how much leeway do you have in order to pitch games to other mm -hmm. companies so actually i um while i'm at funko i can't pitch games to other companies but because i signed my games before i got there then those are all in the clear to continue down their paths of getting published um so they're okay. not that unique in that respect um but yeah, they're, they're still very supportive of, you know, my my um, hobby endeavors whenever I was an independent designer. And so um, those designs are still getting the chance to get their wings and, and you know, get published. That's awesome. And that's great that they're supportive. So when did you start with Funko? I started with Funko. It has almost been a year, um, but the end of last September. Like many people, uh, or I, I'm hoping like many people, I first saw the name Prospero Hall and thought that was just like some cool hipster board game designer's name and assumed that that was a person until a little bit later in which I learned that Prospero Hall was a team. What What's the like nutshell evolution there that you can explain so, you know, ignorant people like myself are a little bit more informed? So Prospero Hall is definitely a team and you are not alone because I initially also thought it was just a really cool <laughs> pseudo name like Sheer. Um, but actually they um, were doing so well with creating these like quality games that Funko came and, and, you know, want to strike up an agreement to kind of absorb them within the company. So we became Funko Games. And actually, whenever we release games, some of them will still say Prospero Hall on them, um, the more hobby end games. Um, but you'll also see that nice Funko games on it. So uh, that's kind of the short of it, as far as I know. I think a lot of people would be celebratory, but also a little bit worried that this would kind of make all of the games that would be coming out of this now 
kind of legendary well maybe maybe not legendary this very well respected uh game design studio Mm -hmm. would suddenly all have these cute chibi figures and aesthetic (laughs) going for it but funko games is more than just a a funko aesthetic factory right you know it extends beyond that and there's all sorts of themes and uh games that you guys are working on like what are some examples of like the exciting stuff that you guys are working on or publishing right now so um, most recently we put out fast and furious and goonies and those are doing really well um so goonies was a cooperative kind of um art excuse me not rpg but um it's a cooperative adventure where you have a gm and um that one has different kind of adventures that you work through. We also have Fast and Furious, which is also cooperative. Um, we have Haunted Mansion, which is a favorite of mine. Um, and that's from someone who hasn't actually written on the Haunted Mansion ride. But uh, that one's a very cool set collection game. And uh, yeah, those those have been coming out. We're going to have a new batch coming out soon. Um, can't talk about them yet. But uh, yeah, you expect games with only the Funko Pops, you know, due to being under the umbrella. And while we do have some um, Funko Pop games, I should asterisk that because you think they would be very cutesy games, but actually they are introduction into war games. They are like war games with the Funko Pops. Um, So even with the Funko Pops, um, we're very purposeful and um, thoughtful when it comes to the design. And when it comes to games with IPs, um, we're very... Um, intentional about how we inject the theme and, you know, make sure that it feels natural and um, that it really brings it alive for people who are fans of the property and still has that nice gaminess to it for people who may not be familiar with the property, like with Haunted Mansion. I still love it even without that attachment. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a, a really cool thing about the the Funko Pop like combat tactical game that's out there i i remember playing that at uh pax unplugged 2019 in the before times uh and i was really amazed because i was expecting one thing just like you were saying and then i was like this is a tactical combat game like i'm looking for cover and harley quinn is shooting you know this thing and laying traps here and i got all the grid base thing and movement points and the, the whole shebang i i was really impressed And what I think is really interesting about that is it's a good enough game that you could not care about the license in any way whatsoever. And suddenly you're like, I don't care who Iron Fist is or who, you know, like uh, Appa. I I don't know. I'm just pulling things out of uh, the air right now. But, you know, licensed characters, you might have no familiarity with the property whatsoever, but because of their role within the game, you might then go, oh, I got to play this. And that's one of the, the beautiful things about it. But we are not just here to talk about Funko. We're here to talk about you, for Tessa, the designer. I got to know, what what's your history with tabletop games? Like, what got you into designing in the first place? So, two separate things. Um, I was always into games as a kid, but not the hobby side of it. I only knew Risk, Monopoly, things like that, that your parents would just like buy and bring home. Hand off to you and your siblings and say, occupy (laughs) yourselves so you don't bother me. Yep. Except there were no siblings for me. So it was just me versus me. Um, And (laughs) I 
I still deeply enjoyed it. And I was socially awkward growing up. And I dare say still socially awkward <laughs> um, if my intro didn't let you know. But um, the thing that I enjoyed was I could relate to people through games. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I could kind of ignore that barrier and just go straight into the fun part with somebody else. And um, I learned that with my parents and then it transferred to other people. So that love for games stuck with me as an adult. And um, later, uh, four years ago, um, I started a, or I didn't start the game night, but friends of mine started a game night and it's just the three of us and we would play every month. And um, one of those friends, she said that she wanted to make a board game. And until that point, I thought board games were just, you know, born together when two stores loved each other um, <laughs> and they just appeared on the shelf. I love it. So um, once that idea got in my head, I, I'm the type of person that when a what if comes in my head, I kind of follow it through. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, what, what would a board game look like if I made one? What would I even make it about? Um, and... I just kept following that until I started making my own board game. Like literally I had a, uh, a desk job in a corporation and during my lunch hour, I, I went down to the CVS, bought construction paper and cut out my first prototype. And um, like just doing that made me so happy. And I, I kept, you know, snowballing it. I played it with my two friends when, when we had our little meetup and, um, then I started researching because I was just like, I only know Rolling Move. So it looked a lot like Monopoly. Um, <laughs> and uh, it kept evolving because I, I um, was listening to podcasts and I was going on to BGG to see what things were. What are game mechanics? Okay. What is a Euro? What is American trash? Is that actually a term or is that an unofficial term? What does that mean? Is that an insult or is that an affectionate term? <laughs> and I was reading essays or like, these are the German school of, of, of game design principles. And, mm. um, you know, just really threw myself into game design um, while designing my first game. And actually it was Book of Villainy, which was on Kickstarter in June. Um, but through trying to learn about game design, I was implementing everything that I learned, um, mm. into that first game. And also that was whenever I started being introduced to the hobby. So it was actually the game design came first and then I delved into the hobby, um, to figure out how to make things work. Like, how do I make things move? What is a mechanic? Like, what are these different mechanics? And, and you know, how do I make this different from Monopoly? The burning question. <laughs> yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, it's such an amazing time uh, when someone is first getting introduced to the tabletop gaming hobby, especially if you grew up with those traditional games and you're not as familiar with the modern stuff. Like even me, I played HeroQuest. I grew up with uh, the traditional games. I played a lot of Magic the Gathering, that kind of stuff. But I had no real concept uh, of the sheer quantity of like real good, solid, interesting games that were coming out. And my moment of awakening was probably 12 years ago at this point when I started going like Catan and Small World and 
Carcassonne. And at that point, I was like, well, these must be the three greatest games of all time. And there's nothing else. These are the three games that have surpassed the 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 traditional image of what a tabletop game should be. And then you start having these ideas about, well, I could do something that's a little bit different than this or combines all the elements of this. And then you realize, oh, thousands of people have gone through this process, but you stuck with it. You know, you actually like cultivated these skills and developed these skills and did the research. And that that's such a, a wonderful story that within four years, now you're getting games published and you are like a full-time game person. If, if this fateful moment didn't happen for you, what would your career trajectory be? Like what, what were you aspiring to be before board games walked into your life? Well, (laughs) I would say that my goal before I got started board games was actually to do visual effects in film and TV. Um, and yeah, I, I was hard on that path. That's what I went to school for. I, I did four years for a digital media degree and then one year for animation and visual effects. Oh, and cool. so <laughs> visual effects was where I kind of landed because I felt like it was something that was fun. But honestly, w- comparing to how I feel whenever I design games, nothing has fulfilled me to the point that I just... I don't feel like anything is is missing like designing board games like it requires me to draw on all of my previous degrees all of my creativity um and you know it, it just allows me to do so many different things that like individual jobs in my past allowed me to do on a smaller level but i i i don't know i'd probably be <laughs> floating around to the next random thing um, to just kind of challenge myself um, until I found my way to something like this. So, how was it explaining it to your parents? I mean, like, like you said, you were playing the games by yourself, and mm-hmm. then at a certain point, you're like, "Hey, mom and dad, or you know, whoever raised you, family is a different thing." I work in social services, so like, family is uh, a malleable concept. But mm-hmm. you know, talking to your loved ones and saying. Hey, I know I have this desk job that's like a good steady job and everything, but I'm going to become a game designer. How did that register with them? I mean, so I, I'm a bit of a uh, oddball. I'm a little weirdo. And so I've always hit my parents with the random things, but also <laughs> I've always been very creative. So I was painting when I was younger, writing books of poetry, writing. I wrote an entire book. So, like, this was just another creative project that mm-hmm. they saw. And, you know, it, w- it was really just a thing that I was doing. And um, I think they didn't really register it as anything different until I had gone down this path of, like, hey, I'm actually going to these conventions. These are taking me out of my comfort zone. Like I'm traveling because of this game and people are talking to me because of this game. I'm talking to people because of it. Um, These are all very opposite from my introverted behavior. Um, And so, you know, they took that as positive. And and once I got it signed, you know, they were just really proud. Uh, They're very proud of it. And, um, you know, just, oh, my daughter made a board game. I told my coworker. (laughs) I don't play games anymore, but yes. 
yeah been very supportive about it that's awesome right now uh you are building up to the the uh kickstarter for uh wicked and wise like we were talking about and mm -hmm. i mentioned at the beginning the getting the weird giraffe treatment i uh, i've known carla cop for a few years now uh and uh, she never ceases to amaze me with the ever-expanding cult of personality that is Carla. She's a, a font of creativity. She empowers a lot of people. She's a great resource for a lot of reasons. Uh, and I always feel like she has dozens of companies running concurrently. I don't know what's going <laughs> on with Carla. Uh, but I always like finding out to what limited degree I can conceptualize everything going on there. How did you get wrapped up with Carla? Was she just a, a publisher that you made a pitch to or did you work with her in some capacity? So Carla was actually my very first, I want to say, convention friend because I, I started out in Atlanta and it's a very small kind of gaming sphere there. Um, so I would go to these gaming conventions and I would be kind of out of place because, again, I was introverted. It was kind of a lot to take in. And Carla was that person that would be like, hey, you want to go step outside for a second? You know, we just take a chill. Um, so she was really that first person. And, and even before that, I had admired her because she was the first female designer that came to my attention um, because when I started listening to podcasts, she was on a couple of them. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really cool to meet her. And uh, we met at Proto ATL the first time. And it wasn't a capacity where I was trying to, um, I wanted to play test my first game, Book of Villainy, with her. Um, and I, that was the most nervous I'd ever been. Carla is the <laughs> nicest person yeah. you could ever like sit down and play a game with. But like it was my first time sitting down with a publisher and I was just like, oh, my God. Um, but she was great. And after that, we ran into each other at Dice Tower in Orlando and I think another um, convention and then online. So we ended up making more of a connection on a friendship level. And um, that was how I got to know her, really. It was just like we were both at conventions in the south and that's a smaller circle i think um so that was the initial contact and then um as far as with wicked and wise because we were friends um i was actually over at her house to do like a, a game jam sort of a thing and yeah. i had brought my prototype for wicked and wise and it was the first time it had ever been played by anyone other than myself um and i was like Guys, I'm sorry. I already know this is going to be trash, but just can we just break it and see if there's a game there afterwards? And I didn't I hadn't even written down the rules. And I was so nervous that I didn't realize that I hadn't written the rules. But um, she and, and Nick played and um, we had one other designer, but my, her name is slipping my my brain. Um, but we played it. And at the end, they were just like, no, there's definitely a game here. This is this is really cool. So that was that connection. <laughs> what was the original intent behind Wicked and Wise? Like when you were uh, sitting down with this game, were you thinking about it thematically? Was mm -hmm. there like a mechanical concept that you were really trying to get across? Mm -hmm. Was the game built around like one core like killer feature, if that makes sense? Or mm -hmm. was it like more cohesive when it came together? So it actually, it was another what if scenario um, because 
I found in all of my game playing that I am not a fan of cooperative games. No. Um, <laughs> You're like the first person I've talked to who's like, I am not a fan. I've heard people be like, yeah, I could take it or leave it, but not a fan. Not a fan. Um, but there are there are still good ones that I will play out there. Just I found that in general, I'm not a fan of cooperative games. I have to ask, what is it about the cooperative game? Sorry to interrupt, but I, oh. I have to know because, <laughs> you know, like, again, you know, if anything, this podcast is about, like, the creative experiences that drive the people who make games. You know, I, I'm less uh, I'm less interested in, like, describe to me every single mechanic and, mm -hmm. you know, like, give me the, the full preview of a game before it actually comes out. I don't need yeah. the full rules or anything, but I care a lot about, like, what are the things that concern the people mm -hmm. who make games? And so uh, I am fascinated by this concept that uh, you would say, like, eh, I, I don't really I don't really like cooperative games. What is it about them that doesn't do it for you? So for me, a lot of the cooperative games that I played, um, they're very puzzly in nature. Like mm -hmm. their essence to me is you as a group are trying to solve a puzzle, the problem of whatever the board is presenting to you. And, and together you work to solve this puzzle in order to win um, that objective. However, to me, the problem with solving a puzzle as a group is everyone has different processing speeds. My sure. processing speed is a little bit slower than most of the people that I play with. Um, and I still have the capability of solving the puzzle. However, every time other people would, you know, one, they can process a puzzle out loud. I have to mm -hmm. process it thinking. So I'm already losing my voice in a game which requires people to vocalize their opinions. Um, two, I don't do well on the spot. So if they even stop and say, hey, Fratessa, what do you think? I'm going to blank <laughs> because yeah. that's not how I process things. Um, and so the opportunity is lost and then, you know, they move on or I say something that doesn't make sense and they say, Oh, but this might be a better plan. And I'm like, yeah, that probably is a better plan right now. And <laughs> they go and do it. So really I'm letting them move the pieces while I watch. And it's more like watching a video unfold than me participating in sure. undoing and doing this puzzle because of the processing speed. Now, if I play the game with say my best friend, and we're on the same level, um, then it's a fun thing for me. Um, same with like live escape rooms, like, you know, um, but if everybody's at different speeds, then I'm really going to be kind of a fly on the wall. And then I really won't feel like I've contributed anything to the puzzle other than standing there and cheering, which it took two to three hours to do. So <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. That that is my thing with cooperative um, games, or the majority that I've um, played. But I will always play a game that I've never played before, no matter what type it is, because um, sure. there's always something to learn. But um, as far as Wicked and Wise, because I was pondering like what what is it about cooperation that I would like, and and if I could make a cooperative game, what would that be like? Um, it made me think about spades, um, because to me, a game where you're partnered with somebody, but you don't know 
all of the information. You have to trust that partner. To mm-hmm. me, that's cooperation because there's that bond of trust there. And I really love games like Spades. Right. Um, so I was like, I want to make a partnering game. So you are cooperating with your partner, but you have to depend on them to be able to act on what's in their hand um, in order to, you know, bring the team together and and, and work towards this goal. Um, so that was the initial um, catalyst for Wicked and Wise. Would it be fair to say that it, it's taking a step beyond cooperative, which is like this ambiguous level of responsibility on the part of any player, mm-hmm. and that what you're looking for is collaborative games? Like uh, on a team project, um, uh, assuming that all things are equal you have to be able to trust that the other person is going to be able to do their role, but they're also here to perform a role. They, they are a vital piece of that experience. And so it, it goes beyond just one person dictating what everything's happening and other people are just essentially facilitating this singular vision. And it's more truly collaborative in nature. People are expected and required to bring the, their own individual parts to the table. That's exactly it. Yes. It's like everyone, because you have your own role, you can process it how you want and execute the decision how you want. And um, you can choose what role it is, what role you're comfortable with as well. So, yes, I I absolutely feel like that covers um, what I like about that. (laughs) So when did dragons and mice come into this? (laughs) So at first it was by whim because um, the first convention that I got to play test this at, wait, first or second convention, it was Metatopia. And I can't remember which came first, BGG Con or Metatopia. But when I play tested at Metatopia, um, I play tested with uh, Julia Hearn. And she just made an offhand comment. She's like, I just could imagine this being like, these dragons with these little mice doing their little little counting (laughs) thing. And that tickled me so much. And I was like, yes. And the mice must be the cutest mice who ever existed. And the Mm -hmm. dragons must be dragonly. Um, And that just like really stuck with me because, you know, I just, I love the animal theme and I thought that it would be something that was still very cute. Something that I would, I wouldn't mind on the cards. Cause initially the theme was like, this prince with his royal advisor trying to keep the prince in check. So they mm. were working together while the prince was like being the wicked one spending all the things and the royal advisor was the wise one doing all the things. But as we got into the gameplay, that became less relevant and not as um it, it didn't it didn't feel like it fit um for what you were doing in the game. But then we tried with the dragons and the mice and liked it (laughs) i find that successful game development not that i'm a game developer or a game designer that's why i'm doing podcasts is because i like talking to the people who do good at this uh but from my experience of talking to many people successful game development uh requires that you can let go of maybe core elements that you were initially passionate about you know the ability to accept a sacrifice on that 
that key item in order to make it a better game. Were there any particularly hard lessons that you had during the development of Wicked and Wise or, you know, like iterations that maybe it crushed you a little in order to say, okay, yeah, we need to do this. Or do you feel like that this one at least kind of flowed together really nicely? I would say there were a lot of challenges uh, with Wicked and Wise. And it wasn't even that it was so hard to let certain things go, but it w- we would kind of have to go all the way back to the start after like developing a cool thing. Like initially... Um, Wicked and Wise had kind of a a deck building um, element to it, uh, where your mouse was, you know, using this this deck that they had built based off of the cards that they got. Um, but it got so gamey and complicated that it was just like, let's let's go back to the drawing board. Let's figure out how we can get this kind of thing where two people are working together but they're doing two different roles the asymmetrical nature of the roles the partnering roles um, was so crucial but it was such a hard thing to balance because you would have this um, thing where the two roles had um, different actions and, 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 and objectives that were so different that they didn't even feel aware of each other. They're like, I'm just trying to do this thing. And coincidentally, my partner's trying to do that thing. Um, and then there were times where we made them overlap so much that it was just like, I barely felt like I was doing anything. Like we were both doing this thing, but like it doesn't make my role unique. So figuring out how to like, make both roles feel important while making the team still remain important so that cooperation was there was very hard um as as well as like trying to make communication happen because trick-taking games communication can be tricky pun intended um and (laughs) i just that that probably took one of the the longest bits so yeah there were definitely some very uh, um interesting places where we kind of not stumbled, but got caught up um, by certain mechanics and we had to like reassess to get them in order. But um, I'm very, very happy with how everything came together. As a relatively new game designer, uh, even though you have already games published and games that are to be published soon and you are part of a a now like full-time game design gig, are there benchmark games that you look at, maybe not from their like financial success, but as far as like their the 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 peak of creativity or you know what what hits you the most as a creative individual that mm-hmm. you draw inspiration from? Like the the best thing that I can relate this to is that um, you know I'm a musician. I've written music my entire life. And there are certain songs that I'll listen to and I'll think like, man, if I could write a song like that, not that I'm ever going to, but like that is such a a perfect song in so many regards. And I draw huge inspiration from even the act of trying to, uh, you know, like aspire to make something of that level. Mm -hmm. Um, which of course, you know, is is a hard benchmark to put on yourself. Uh, but um, you know, are there games like that? Games that you feel like, ooh, that is what I want to be as a designer—someone who makes a game like that. 
I feel like more than a game that is so unique that it impresses me is the games that I continually want to open and and like introduce people to that mm-hmm. really leave a very strong impression on me because then I'll go back to what is it about this game that feels just good like what is it that I am coveting about this game um splendor is one of them and stone age is another and usually mm. they are so simple like so, so very you know like this is a great i don't even know if gateway is the right word but um it is such a a just a good clean game that i sit there and analyze like how did you arrive at this and why is it that people fell in love with it why did i fall in love with this game um so Often the design elegance is something that really, really um, sticks with me because the accessibility of a design is like what I I really strive to do in my own designs. And I'm not always successful, but that accessibility is so important to get people who don't consider themselves gamers into the gaming hobby. That's how I get, you know, parents and friends to game and say, oh, that's not that bad. Actually, I would do that again. Or to even introduce it to somebody else in their circle um, to expand beyond what is considered the hobby. So tapping into what makes something accessible and um, feel like it is easy to digest while like, containing that replayability is like super interesting to me yeah i I completely relate to you on that i mean whether it's board games or back to music i mean like i think about the the songs that most impress me are the songs that do so much with so little whether it's like ccr's who will stop the rain or it's mf doom's figaro you know it's you know any number of different songs that like feel so spartan yet they are so robust and it's the same thing with games i mean i play tons of heavyweight games and there are loads of heavy duty games that i really love but the ones that kind of floor me where i have to like sit back i'm like that is a design fee are games like splendor or uh recently um whitehall mystery was a game where i was like this distills the entire genre of of hidden movement into its barest parts it is so easy to learn that i could explain it to non-gamers in a cinch yet it is the most like high octane version of this genre uh and and that balance between simplicity and and depth uh and and reward from it is so good and those are the games that like feel elegant and and beautiful and like that i i can see why you know that that would be the benchmark to you know look at those as something to achieve Mm mm-hmm that wasn't really a question. That's not really a good discussion topic, I guess, on my part. Sometimes I like going into other directions here. But I I, I do want to know, you know, going back to uh, you working at Funko, I, it's so rare that I get a chance to talk to people who are staffers at a company. Uh, so, like... W- what is your day job? Like, what do you do when you show up to work? You know, like, how do you fill your time and arrange your time? And how is that different than when you were a freelance game designer? Yeah. So my actual title is game producer. Um, And that in the description of that, it's kind of like project management where, excuse me, you get a, uh, a timeline, like say, 
hey, I want you to design this game about X. Um, this is the budget for it, and um, this is the age range for it, and also this is uh, kind of the, the, the IP that goes with it. Go. Um, so at that point, as a producer, they may assign us like a actual game designer to work on it, um, as well as like some artists that may be working on the project so that you can get that going and tell us, you know, it's due however many months from now. Um, so, you know, get your milestones in and, you know, get the product moving. Um, and as a game producer, you're trying to make sure that the game hits its different milestones on the timeline um, while also developing the gameplay itself. Um, but the cool thing, the or the cooler thing is, um, it's a very, Prospero Hall slash Funko Games is very much a collaborative atmosphere. So it doesn't matter what your title is, you're contributing to the game. And that's why we have just Funko Games on the box rather than individual names. Because I don't care if your title is graphic designer or, you know, uh, sales or whatever, everyone can contribute to game design ideas. Everyone can play test these ideas. And it's because of every single role that these games get made, literally. Um, so like, even though my title is game producer, I have the opportunity to design games. And in fact, I have designed and produced seven games at this point. Um, so it, it's like, the opportunity is there to, you know, go beyond what just the role says. And you really get to stretch yourself to these different challenges. And, um, like, you, you get to see so many things, I guess, behind the curtain that as an independent designer, I had no, I guess, thoughts of because I wasn't on the publisher end. But, like, thinking about, oh, how much this particular component might cost or thinking about, like, oh, if this game is for five-year-olds, what is their cognitive ability? Mm, um, you know, yeah. if, if this game is for three-year-olds, like, you, there has to be an age where you actually learn how to roll a die, right? Sure, and sure. <laughs> at a certain age, it's just not feasible because they're just going to throw it rather than actually, like, roll it. Um, so that's why we have things like spinners. Um so, like, learning these little things, um, I guess, from the consumer end of it, and then also considering it um, when designing is so very interesting because um, it's almost like a, a game design challenge uh, where they tell you, you know, these are your components, this is your deadline, um, this is your theme, go and see what you can create. But, you know, we do that for just all of these games, and it, it, it's so fun for me because it's not something that my brain would have reached for on its own um, in comparison to what I did as an independent designer. Um, all of those were really just kind of, I don't know if you would even say passion project, project, but it felt like passion projects where, you know, I had this what if question, I followed it and I followed it all the way through. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about necessarily ages or anything I even though I personally picked who I wanted my audience to be and who I thought would be playing that game um it's totally different when you're thinking about you know the audience who may be buying it that have never played games before or something like that 
Well, you're a creative individual and the heart of creativity is in the the restrictions, the limitations, the parameters that you have to work around because that's what gives you the, the interesting challenges to overcome. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. So that is that is probably the biggest difference is is I'm actually given these nice challenges and um, the pickle is trying to figure it out. And um, I would say as an independent designer, I never imagined I could work on more than one game at once. Like people would say, oh, I'm working on five <laughs> different games. I'm going to put this in the box and test right. this now. And that would horrify me. Um because, but also I was working a full-time job that had nothing to do with games. And, you know, I lost sleep trying to develop just the one game. Um, also, I like to tunnel vision. So, you know, I put my 100% into that game. However, working as a, a professional um, game producer is totally different. And actually I do juggle multiple games because I now have the capacity to do that. So, um working style my working style changed because you know i had time to actually free up for that um but also like you, you i guess you you don't know what you can do until you you actually get the opportunity so that's great well i want to end this with something fun and you are a creative person you're someone who thrives on challenges as we've discussed throughout the entirety of this episode and you work for a company that has access to about a bajillion licenses. But even beyond that, even if licensing weren't a restriction, I want to know if you could make any game, any game for you with a mm -hmm. particular IP, what would it be? If I could make a game just for me with any particular IP, I'm not even going to lie, it would be a BTS game because <laughs> K-pop. Um, I'm just going to put it. that one out there. <laughs> Love it. And it would be a K-pop game and it would probably be like the lightest, silliest game, but I would love it and I would play it. So I, I would be there playing it with you. Uh, I definitely have my K-pop uh, YouTube playlists going on. Yes. My yes. my kid jams to all of that. He loves the haircuts. He He's yes. all into it. Uh, it's our cleaning music. Uh, and I think that that would be marvelous. Someone contact for Tessa about, <laughs> you know, how to get all the licenses to all the different, uh, I guess, organizations. Because K-pop is such like a unique world uh, of music, but also industry. And so if Funko can secure all that to get it into your hands, then I think you got something cooking. So... For Tessa, thanks for coming on to the show we have on the horizon. Wicked and Wise is coming to Kickstarter August 10th. Do you have any other projects that you want to highlight that you have coming up that people should know about? Yep. So my third game is Mansplaining, and that one's signed with Breaking Games, and that one will actually be coming to shelves, not Kickstarter. Um, we're looking definitely 2022. I'm thinking spring 2022. We don't have an official date yet, but keep an eye out on uh, my Twitter at Fratessa and I will always update with that. That's awesome. We'll have the links to all that in the description to the video, to the podcast. And once again, this has been an absolute pleasure and I can't wait to see where your career goes from here. Thank you for coming on to the show, Fratessa. Thank you for having me. See you guys.